You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Hello, it has been so exciting to meet with your teams around the country for webinars and presentations. Sharing the research through case studies using pictures and videos from the Awaken Walking ICU without fail makes jaws drop. Online, people are very resistant to the idea. As Dr. Dale Needham from Johns Hopkins says, telling people that most patients should be awake and walking in the ventilator is like telling them the world is flat. Yet, just because it's new does not mean that it's not true. Just because you haven't done it does not mean that it can't or should not be done. Just because it's what we do does not mean that it's right. We are in a field of evolution. The awakened walking ICU started because a nurse named Polly from episodes two and 21 started with the very questions that bring progress. She dared to ask why, why not? And what if dozens of listeners are also pioneering the change in their units, shift by shift, patient by patient. So let's dive into this exciting episode with ICU revolutionists around the world. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Anastasia Reed, RNBSN state of Texas. I just want to share with you really quick about my empowerment that I feel with mobility in the ICU. Ever since COVID happened, it had been a game of sedating and over sedating and keeping people down to ventilate them and, and oxygenate them going into ARDS, right? But even before that, inconsistency with hospitals of, of best practice being implemented is always a struggle. When I think about mobility on ventilators for patients in the ICU, what really drives it home for me the reason why I'm so empowered is because I saw the destruction, the atrophy, the money being wasted and the discouragement and, and, and the lack and loss of integrity in nursing because it almost seemed like a vicious cycle. With mobility on ventilators in the ICU and sedation, I understand that we utilize our sedation skills, but I do not think we use them optimally. I challenge you guys, it's mind over matter, okay? These patients, when they're awake on a ventilator, please don't be scared, don't put them down. I, sometimes I fear that as nurses, we don't know how to respond to a patient on a ventilator or, you know, educate them or be comfortable with it because we don't, we don't do it enough, you know? And so when you don't do something enough, you don't feel as empowered. And so what I want you guys to do is, is you get more comfortable with, with talking to patients. You get, you get more education on what it really means to, to have somebody mobile in the ICU, you know, walking on a ventilator. Why is it that we can't do it? It's not about the resources. I understand there's a lack of everything, but all it takes is from shift to shift to shift. That one nurse saying, I wing that down aggressively. This patient is gone completely batshit crazy. Excuse my French, but truthfully, communicate with the doctor, reorient the patient. They're in a state of not sleep. It's delusions. It's psychosis. They have a loss of everything. Step up and step forward and reorient them. Get the right drugs on board. Communicate with the physician so that the next shift, that patient is a lot more calm and alert. Guess what? That nurse has to do less work. The nurse after that does less work. And once you see this pattern, you start seeing people coming off the ventilators. You stop seeing, you know, 
more money being blown down the drain for these patients, which are like corpses sometimes on the ventilators, y'all. You have to empower each other. Find whatever it is in the ICU or find whatever it is in nursing that empowers you and go with it because it is us that build each other up. And for me, it was mobility on patients on ventilators in the ICU. So I challenge you to see how you feel about taking care of your patients next time you're putting them down and sedating them. It's not about what you feel or you think they feel. It's about getting them better and setting those emotions aside and using as little sedation to minimal as possible and continuously working on communication and improvement, reorientation, and getting them where they need to be. I challenge you, all nurses, to empower each other. It starts with one. Hey, everybody. My name is Austin, and I currently work as an ICU travel nurse here in Nashville, Tennessee. I want to share with you an Instagram message that I actually sent to the Walking Home from the ICU podcast after a recent interaction I had at work. The message read, I love listening to your podcast and learning. I wanted to keep propofol off on a patient that is intubated for respiratory failure tonight. He's alert and following all commands, writing sentences and typing on his phone. The nurse practitioner walks in and sees him writing sentences to me and says he needs to rest. I stated he was doing well off of propofol and was only requiring low-dose fentanyl for pain related to a recent chest tube insertion. She reiterated that he needed to rest and that I needed to turn the sedation up. From previous episodes, I've learned the importance of mobilizing patients and maintaining a normal sleep cycle. I offered to have her place an order for melatonin instead in hopes that we wouldn't have to further sedate the patient. Being that I'm not well-versed in these scenarios uh, and what the Walking Home from the ICU podcast succeeds in, I wanted to message Callie for her thoughts on how to address this situation without coming off as somewhat of like a know-it-all or, you know, just with a bad, you know, view in front of the family and the nurse practitioner. So after this particular scenario, I've worked hard to ensure that my intubated uh, patients receive little to no sedation. I work on ensuring that increased uh, mobility during the day and then clustering care, melatonin, just a normal sleep cycle at night. The unfortunate part about all this is that with my newfound practices, I've had a number of nurses kind of turn their nose up to me and say, oh, you know, if I'm, you know, if I ever come in and I'm intubated, you know, you better make sure that I'm sedated. I love everything about this podcast and I hope to create a change in every ICU I work in. It's scary going against the grain, but it's definitely worth it for our patients. So to preface, I am a night shift nurse and I was a huge skeptic when it came to the idea of keeping people awake on the vent. I actually came from a culture where we would go so far as to put people on the BiPAP on things like Presidex and Ativan to help them from being too anxious. So, but after I came across the podcast, I started incorporating the idea of keeping people awake and moving on the vent into my practice. And I noticed a huge, one of the most notable experiences that I had was a patient who made a remarkable neurological recovery. And when I first started my shift, I came in and this patient was sedated and in restraints, but was a true RAS of negative one to negative two would awake appropriately. I worked very hard to get this person off of sedation throughout my shift just by talking with them and kind of allowing them to communicate with me. This person actually knew sign language. So when I took the restraints off, they were so happy because they were like, hey, I can talk to you now. And I was like, oh my gosh, I also know sign language. So we were having a good old time. And something as small as taking the restraints off was a really big deal to this person. But towards the end of the night, I told them, I was like, hey, listen, it's time to get your bath done. It's about 5 a.m. I'm gonna have you sit on the side of the bed. And this was kind of unheard of at the facility that I had been working at. And 
this person did just fine. This person had excellent mobility. I had someone in the room with me just in case. But when I got them to the side of the bed, they just hugged me. And they were so, so grateful for the opportunity to be, to be up and moving for the first time in a couple days. And that was when it really hit home for me. During report, I was giving report to the day shift nurse. And of course, the first thing that this person said was, oh my gosh, the patient isn't in restraints. What is she on for sedation? To which I replied, nothing, this person is fine. They're awake and oriented and they're definitely ready for an SBT. Let's get this tube out. And I was kind of blown off rather flippantly, but we were able to work through that. So I left and I realized that I had forgotten my water bottle. And I turned around to go get my water bottle. And as I was passing the patient's room, I saw the nurse that I had given handoff to pushing sedation and putting this patient back in restraints. And the level of betrayal and hurt and fear and confusion on this patient's face broke my heart in a way that I really can't begin to describe. This patient was having their personhood and their autonomy taken away. And while I understand that there are situations in which sedation and analgesia analgesia are required, we've gotten very, very liberal with what our definition of those situations are. I was able the next night to get this patient off of sedation again and get them extubated, but they remembered everything. And they were very upset and reasonably terrified. A little more positive patient experience that I had was with a COVID patient on BiPAP. And this person was on BiPAP for three days. I had admitted them and I came back after three days and I had found out that they were now on Presidex. They were stationary in the bed and they hadn't gotten out of bed or eaten in three days. I had gotten to know this person initially when they came in, they had COVID and they were telling me that they had owned a karate studio for 13 years and that they just liked to be active. And even though this person was older, they had really taken it upon themselves to remain active. So I was technically supposed to be leaving, but I went to go see this person because this person was very special to me. And I had asked my physician, I talked to my team. I was like, hey, we've got to get this person out of the bed. We've got to get them moving. We can try them on high flow if we can just get them out of the bed. But part of what's keeping them on the BiPAP is their anxiety about not moving and not being able to breathe. So my attending gave me permission, said, go ahead. And I went in there and this person was distraught is the best way that I could describe it. They felt like they had been forgotten. They felt like they had been put in a closet and had a mask put on their face. They're pretty high BiPAP settings, but that they were just being left there to die. And going from living a very active lifestyle to being required to stay in bed and do nothing with no food, no family, no activity, I can't imagine. It sounds like prison. And I told this person, we're getting up. I've brought a recliner. You're going to get up out of this bed and you're gonna put on that high flow and you're going to breathe. But first we're gonna work out a little bit with that BiPAP on. 
And this person was like, no, no, they told me it wasn't safe. And I was like, you know, maybe at that point in time, but right now, this is what's going to make the difference between you staying in this bed and going home to your wife. And this person agreed. So we were able to do just some sort of sitting at the bed exercises with marching in a sitting position, raising their arms, putting them down, raising their arms, putting them down. And once I was fairly certain that we were a lot more stable on our feet than we would have been by ourselves, me and one of the techs helped this person ambulate on the BiPAP to a chair. And for the first time in three days, that person was able to get on high flow. They were able to get a diet. They were able to start participating in their care. And up until that point, there had been talk about intubating that patient. But that day, I am fully convinced that moving that patient, ambulating that patient, they needed the BiPAP during ambulation. Absolutely. But we modified oxygen administration to match the patient's activity, not just what they needed at a stationary point. And this person went home and I took off the Presidex. We were doing great. And I truly, truly chalk that up to removing sedation from my practice. Hi, my name is Paul McMillan. I am a critical care nurse in central Ohio. There are two experiences that come to mind with mobilization and uh, decreased sedation. The first one was many years ago, I had a patient who had a stroke. He had been traked, traked had been reversed, aspirated, wound up intubated in our ICU. Pulmonary doctor said his pneumonia was large and he didn't think that this gentleman was ever going to get off of the ventilator again. We took him, stood him up. He was already used to being intubated, so he didn't need sedation. He was able to march in place. He was able to walk around. Every time he moved, we would suction large amounts of aspiration out of his lungs and get it out of there. Two days later, he got off, about, got off of the ventilator. The ICU doctor, who I have tremendous respect for and trust with my life, said, I don't believe this. I don't even know how this is possible. Second event is a person who we had who had no cuff leak and we were being conservative with her care. So she was waiting to get off of the ventilator, but she did not need sedation. She was able to move around. We had mobilized her. PTOT had gotten her out of bed with my help. She was able to move well enough that by the next day, I had her just walking in a gate belt. The travel or the nurse, the respiratory therapist, excuse me, would bring us a travel ventilator. I would push the cart with the travel ventilator on it. She would walk right next to me and we would just do a loop periodically in the hall. We would do this about three or four times a day. Every time that we did this, every nurse in the whole hallway would just stop and look like they were having a heart attack and couldn't believe that someone was doing something like that. Those have been patients who had we just sedated them and had we not given them an opportunity to move around would have spent a longer period of time on a ventilator. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mikita Fuchida, and I am an early career physician anesthesia and critical care medicine practicing in Colorado. I stumbled upon Kaylee's podcast midway through my critical care fellowship training. It was a deep culture shock because for the past eight years of my training, sedation drips were the default for patients on the ventilator. I had heard of patients walking on the ventilator through lectures at national meetings, but I thought those were special patients and circumstances. Before this podcast, I didn't know that many, if not most patients could tolerate breathing tube without sedation drips. I didn't know that a patient retained vivid memories of delirium and hallucination while on sedation, 
were sometimes dragged for life, and I didn't know that trach, peg, and LTAC disposition were preventable. Stories of the IC survivors brought me tears because all they talked about was the suffers and tears brought by sedation and delirium, which I was completely unaware of. I spent the last few months of my fellowship training trying to figure out how to minimize sedation at my uh, training facility. I found two major barriers. One was the culture. Telling a nurse not to start sedation after an emergent intubation was difficult, to say the least. But I persisted, and all patients woke up calm and proved to the uh, nurses that sedation was unnecessary. All I needed to do was to explain to the uh, patients before intubating that avoiding sedation will allow them to control their thoughts, communicate with family, preserve strength, and improve short and long-term outcomes, and that they will still receive small doses of medications as needed to assure comfort. As Kaylee often discusses on her podcast, not starting sedation was simple and easy. Explanation and reassurance went a long way. For some patients, though, uh, especially those that have already been on sedation drips for a while, reading sedation triggered anxiety, uh, agitation, coughing spells, uh, ventilator dyssynchrony, hypoxia. The reflex was to increase the sedation back up, but those situations uh, reminds me of the old saying that goes like, if you if all you have is a hammer, everything will be treated like a nail. Sedation is convenient but it scars the patients. And there's actually other things in your toolbox, such as family presence for anxiety, reorientation and mobility for agitation, ventilator adjustment for dyssynchrony, and diuresis for hypoxia. If you can keep one patient comfortable off sedation, chances are that you've initiated the process of changing people around that patient. Seeing is believing. And my institution nurses that initially insisted on giving more sedation for their patients started spreading the idea of sedation avoidance once they witnessed the success with their own eyes. One uh, nurse is actively uh, helping organize a quality improvement team, and another nurse is holding education sessions for other nurse, uh, nursing colleagues. Discussing sedation, delirium, mobility during the rounds also helps bring awareness and educate uh, junior trainees. One medical student was inspired by the discussions and went on to interview the ICU staff and wrote a QI proposal. If you believe in the benefits of sedation avoidance and early mobility as supported by the literature, be vocal about it and act within your circle of influence. You'll be surprised by the impact you can make, however small it may feel to you at first. One particular case that I look back on was we had a 90-year-old gentleman admitted to the ICU with a COPD exacerbation, requiring intubation on APRV. Earlier in the morning when I went to see this patient, he had failed his spontaneous breathing trial. I saw him within four hours of his spontaneous breathing trial. He was alert. He was following commands. He was eager to participate. He was actually pointing to his tube in hopes of having it removed. We were able to ambulate this patient actually around the entire nurse's station with the assistance of the nursing, the bedside nurse and a respiratory therapist. The patient ended his session sitting up in the bedside chair and the team decided within two hours that they were ready to extubate him. They extubated him to six liters nasal cannula and he was able to maintain his extubation. He was transferred out of the ICU the following morning and transferred to home within two days. The look on the residents' faces was something that will always stay with me, the look of the surprise as to how well this patient was able to do on life support walking in the hallway. I think the takeaway really looks at is that we're eager to treat infection with antibiotics and we need to be eager, as eager, more eager to be treating immobility, to give patients the ability to progress, to be able to get their lives back and to be able to go back to their home. 
Hi, my name is Mia. I'm a nurse in New Mexico, and I discovered this podcast through a nursing group I am a part of on Facebook. When I first started listening to this podcast, I thought to myself, there's no way. How can this be applicable to everyone? Some people need sedation. But as I continued to read and listen to the facts and testimonials, I found that it sounded doable and it was something that I would like to start incorporating into my own nursing practice in the ICU. A few weeks ago, I had a patient who ended up on the vent for a prolonged time due to a complication from a routine procedure. Upon start of my shift with this patient, she had just gotten back from yet another surgery and I noticed she was regressing on the ventilator. She had been on spontaneous mode prior to going to the OR and was starting to have apneic periods requiring her to be put back on a more supportive mode. My first thoughts were, well, she just got out of the OR and needs to wake up more. So I turned off her propofol and stayed with her until she was awake. Once awake, I explained to her why I was waking her up and if she knew all that she had been through since her routine procedure. I provided a notepad for her to communicate with me and she couldn't believe everything that had happened. She seemed very comfortable on the ventilator and agreed that she was indeed comfortable with staying awake so she could be more involved in her care and decisions. She wasn't quite ready to come off of the vent at that point and It was shocking to me to see how quick everyone was around me, including the intensivist, to say sedate her, don't let her sit there miserable for a whole day, and also saying things like, if I ever end up on the vent, keep me sedated. The thing is, though, she wasn't miserable. She was quite comfortable and in no distress, and therefore, we had both agreed that her staying awake and getting back to a normal sleep and wake cycle was important. As the sedation left her system and she continued to wake up, I decided she was alert and oriented enough to be off of the restraints and allowed her to work on range of motion exercises to prevent muscle atrophy. Come the next day, we extubated her and once able to talk, she couldn't thank me enough for not sedating her and giving her a choice because this allowed her the opportunity to understand and process what had just happened to her. I do truly feel that this changed her experience. I have a lot of colleagues to try and convince, but this story right here is my proof that this approach works and is doable. I think that COVID and the unpredictability of the virus, along with doctors trying to find treatments that will work, which usually involves heavily sedating and paralyzing the patient, really made us lose sight of the fact that excessive and prolonged sedation is not good. Personally, I've noticed that for our COVID patients that have ended up on ECMO, the ones who were off of sedation and paralytics quicker in addition to working with physical and occupational therapy while still on the vent and even sometimes while still on ECMO, had better outcomes. We do have a long way to go, but with evidence-based practice and stories like these to support it, I really think we have the ability to change the way we look at ICU care across the U.S. My biggest advice to those of you who may still feel apprehensive about it is to just go for it. Education truly is key, and we as nurses have the power to change so much more than we believe. I came on shift and had been floated, so on the short walk from the ICU to the overflow unit, which is like a step-down unit, and I can hear some yelling as the doors swing open. Most of the words were intelligible, but not quite strewn together in a way that made sense. So I continue to walk to find out what the commotion is and come to a patient room doorway, and I see quite a bit of a mess. There's linen all over the floor, the bed is in disarray, the patient is restrained and trying to get out of bed, and again, just yelling loud bursts of words to no one in particular, but the patient seems agitated and safe. So I'm just on shift and not current on the situation. I concluded the patient was safe and in no distress at the moment and continued to the nurse's station for report. On my way there, I run into the other nurse that was going to be my partner for the day, and I look to the board and see that he has said howler patient, we'll just call him Hal from now on, along with two others. 
As we start a report, we're quickly interrupted by Hal a couple more times. I hear tidbits of the other report and then hear the continued ruckus of that patient. I realize that my counterpart is going to have an awful morning, if not the rest of the day, being tripled with this particular patient. So I offered to take one of his other assignments for the morning, if not the rest of the day, as it seems it's going to take some time to settle this guy down. Our night shifters leave and him and I powwow about a plan. We made quick rounds and met in the patient's room to see what we could do. On arrival, Hal is confused, attempts to propel himself out of bed, but is redirectable for a time. He has a trach and is on the ventilator, but continues to pop himself off, is breathing well over, pulling great volumes and setting 100%. I get tidbits of the night. The guy was attempting to get out of bed, received some Versed and some Ativan, had previously been on sedation for a while from an endotracheal tube, but had graduated to his current trach. They had weaned his sedation off a couple days ago, but he still got intermittently rambunctious, especially overnight. He also previously pulled out his peg tube. His appearance seems to have a gleam of sweat, possibly from working so hard, or possibly withdrawing from his previous fentanyl, versed, and other cocktails. The guy has not slept in days. The guy is quite obviously delirious. Our plan of attack was get him clean, get him up, get him mobile, get him tired, hold off on the further versed or ativan as the effects are repetitive. Over the next 30 minutes, we changed him to a humidified trach collar, bathed him, shaved him, applied his glasses, removed his non-working rectal tube, and did a stand pivot to the chair. After all the sitting up, moving around, the guy was exhausted and looked like a new man. He quickly fell asleep on his side in the chair. Over the shift, his family arrived, and they were able to spend time with him at the bedside, entertain him, and keep him company while awake. They also redirected him appropriately. The patient was able to work with PT, OT, and speech. We were also able to take him on an additional walk twice without PT. While this should sound pretty boring and normal, it isn't. Had my counterpart not been his nurse, and had we not taken the steps, literally, in our shift, it could have looked very different and like another normal. He could have been resedated, doses increased, meds changed, kept on the ventilator, kept intermittently sedated without any real sleep. He would have been somnolent or agitated when his family arrived. He may have been too agitated or sedated to work with PT, OT, or speech. Instead, he not only got out of bed, but walked several times for the first time in a month. He worked with speech and moved on to a passing mirror valve, worked with OT, spent the entire day in the chair, was not only liberated from the vent, but basically on room air by the time we left. The next day, he had slept soundly throughout the night and was calm when we arrived. A couple weeks later, I was floated again. Drab. Yes, I know. But guess who came walking in the door with his partner? That same guy! I feel like while it was another 12-hour day for us, that shift could have gone very differently, with a different outcome. The delirious, restrained, PRN sedation norm became a get-out-of-bed, to-the-chair, work with PT, walk with family, go to the bathroom, have meals, sleep normal hours norm. Now which norm would you prefer if that had been you, or your loved one in that bed? Hi, my name is Santiago, from Argentina. I like keep patients awake and working on the ventilator. We like providing virtual reality games, distractions and therapy. I love communicating with them, seeing them smile and giving thumb up with endotracheal tubes. The Walking Home from the ICU podcast has been such an effective way to um, bring my team together to just hear so many stories of patients who have either been through the awakened walking ICU and what their experience was like, along with patients who have been deeply sedated in a more conventional ICU setting and all of the um, repercussions of that. Having my colleagues listen to these stories and listen to the podcast has 
really been a huge catalyst for change, so much so that we were able to host Kaylee for a webinar within my hospital system where she was able to present several case studies of patients who have, she's taken care of using this awakened walking ICU method. And it was incredibly eye-opening for my team to not only just hear more stories, but to hear it directly from Kaylee and then have the opportunity to ask questions to her about, you know, common barriers and misconceptions that people have about this method of ICU care. And just having that one-on-one interaction with her was really special and I believe helped drive lots of success stories that we had in my hospital, such as, you know, patients not ready to be extubated yet, actually getting up and walking around the unit as opposed to just restarting sedation and, you know, setting the patient back another day. We even had a story such as this with a COVID patient, which I talked about in an episode with Kaylee, where, you know, the COVID patient was a pretty standard patient population for apprehension when it came to liberation, but we were able to limit sedation to the point where we had it off. And then we're able to have this patient walking around and the room and even playing tic-tac-toe on the glass wall, despite the fact that he was limited to his room with the COVID-19 infection. And even more exciting was that he was discharged home from that ICU stay. So I really believe that the podcast and the webinar and hearing stories from Kaylee and other people that that she works closely with and patients has been such a pivotal you know, vector for driving this change and getting people excited about the future of the ICU. So the first patient I want to share about would do Tai Chi as they walked around the unit. They would take a few steps and then stop and do some motions and some stretches and then take a few more. And going around the the whole unit took about probably like 15 minutes, but they did Tai Chi the whole way around and it was it was just so fun to watch. They really enjoyed it. Another patient I thought of, this particular patient had dwarfism. We would take the patient for walks around the unit and physical therapy would sit on um, one of those little wheelie chairs and help the patient walk around the unit and just guide them. And when we'd get back to the patient room, the patient would stay at the edge of the bed and use one of those little foot pedal bikes that we used a lot during COVID, but the patient would stay in their room and use it on their hands and you would just look in the room and see see this little patient just sitting there peddling with their hands all day. And it was just really fun. It wasn't until our big COVID surge during the winter that I started to understand the side effects of sedation during intubation. Um, I thought it was just COVID, but um, now that I have learned about um the awake and walking ICU, I realized that most of that might have been from sedation. Um, I know that COVID is an awful virus and uh, has done some terrible things to uh, bodies, but um, I'm sure that the side effects would have been much less if we had not sedated so much. So in that respect, I have a few patients I could talk about where One was sedated and intubated for a week, and the other 
was only intubated but allowed to get up to a chair and then eventually walked with physical therapy. The results are completely different. Same age group, actually very young, and the patient who was sedated ended up very confused for a little while, extremely weak, couldn't even get up to stand for a while, days, and then once started walking, it was very minimal. So the other patient who was not sedated was able to walk around the room within one try, and it was absolutely amazing. We had a doctor come in and said, quote unquote, I have never seen a patient sedated and walking. This is amazing. So keep going. Whether it's sticking to that sedation vacation, letting a patient wake up right after intubation, being the first to set a patient up, or even pulling your team together for a webinar, you can bring the change for one patient, that one unit, and even a whole specialty of medicine. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.